morning. If you want to open up to Ruth, I'm going to start Ruth, maybe, Lord willing, maybe six weeks or so in Ruth. And Ruth is right before 1 Samuel. Alright, so why don't we just start here by reading the first chapter of Ruth together. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Limelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malhan and Chilhan, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And when the, they went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha, and the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. Both Mahan and Chilon died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard that in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should, say I have hope, even if I should have a husband, and this night should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. All right, so the topic we're really going to try and cover in the next two messages, just just a brief treatment on suffering. 
and difficulty. Uh, a lot of times, whenever you read about this, maybe in a systematic theology or something like that, they, they use a word to summarize uh, kind of this statement. So just FYI, it's the word theodicy, theodicy. And what they mean by that is the difficulty of suffering in a world where um, we're saying God is good. And it's actually something that the Bible covers a lot. And so I, I don't know what you think about when you think about Ruth exactly. Like, okay, what is the book of Ruth about? If there's anything that comes to your mind. But I'm going to kind of give you a little thought and something to think about. And that's kind of the way I'm going to talk about it this morning. But I want you to think about Ruth as like um, a, maybe a, a right-hand, left-hand, kind of similar but different contrast to the book of Job. Okay, it's like a female version of Job. And I think if you think about it, it really makes sense. Uh, there's a lot of similarities, but then the differences are also quite striking. So think about Job. I think a lot of you have kind of the idea of the first few verses of Job in your mind, but Job, he's got sons, he's got daughters, he's got fields, he's got possessions, and then some, things start to go wrong, right? And first, his possessions are taken and then even more, and then wind strikes the house, and that is children are in, and they die. And so it just keeps going down and down and down like this, and every moment it seems like, well, is it going to get better? It just keeps you know, going down and down and worse and worse, and just real difficulty. Now think about this chapter here with Naomi. It's very similar. First, famine, okay, and then they go to Moab. And then her husband dies. And then her, hun, her sons uh, get wives, but then they die. And then there's another famine. So you see the same kind of pattern of down and down and down. It's like every moment you think it's going to get a little bit better, it just gets worse and worse. And even the responses of Naomi and Job are actually quite similar in their statements. Um, and they're expressing, Lord, you know, this is very difficult. That the hand of the Lord is against me. Um, and they're struggling. And they're expressing that. So, just something to think about. There's a lot of, we'll get into it later on, but there's a lot of differences as well. Like, the friends of Job aren't very good friends, whereas Naomi has Ruth, who actually is a wonderful friend in suffering. And so, there's a contrast there as well. It's like, the things, like the right hand and the left hand, oh, they're so similar, right? But yet, they're different. They're strikingly different, you know, um, that's not a perfect illustration, but that's kind of the way I'm viewing uh, Job and Ruth. And I think it's helpful because whenever we talk about suffering and this problem of suffering and the difficulty of living in a world with suffering and sin when God's on the throne, um, that, that, that we need to bring in the whole Bible, okay? And so for the first part of this message, I'm going to kind of set the stage and actually spend a little bit of time saying what this is not saying before we get into what it is saying. And so the first thing I want to really point out here is that all suffering is not a result of a specific sin. All suffering is not a result of specific sin. And the reason I'm bringing this up is as, as I was reading through different commentaries, a lot of people basically blame um, Naomi and Elimelech here. It's like, well, look, it says they went to Moab and they remained there. That was really bad. They should not have done that. That was they didn't believe God. They didn't trust God. 
Well, the problem is there's none of that in the Bible, right? It doesn't say that. Um, the one thing that we can say from reading this whole first section is that her sons took wives that weren't uh, converted, right? They were worshiping other gods. And we see that in the text there where Naomi actually, uh, Naomi actually says to Orpha, like, go back to your gods. And so we know that she's not um, trusting the Lord. And I won't go into too much of it, but we kind of covered this in Nehemiah where the real commandments aren't, weren't necessarily against taking foreign wives. They're all talking about don't take foreign wives because they're going to lead you away from God. And so it's very similar to the New Testament command, don't be unequally yoked, right? That there's actually, this book is a good example of somebody who does take a foreign wife who's who is trusting the Lord, who basically is assimilated into um, the real worshiping Yahweh, the real God, and that's Ruth. And so there's a positive example here, and there's lots of other positive examples like Rahab and, and things like that. Um, but anyways, all that is to say, they did sin. Uh, it, seems, it seems clear that we know for sure one of the sons should not have taken this um, wife. God in Deuteronomy says he shouldn't. But what we can't do is take that and decide, well, that's why the sons died, and that's probably why God's doing this to Naomi, because she's not faithful and she's not trusting God. We just can't do that. Um, one thing that helps is Job, right? Think about the book of Job, how similar this is. Isn't that exactly what Job's friends come in and do to Job? And God basically is teaching us, don't do that. When somebody's in suffering, come in and tell them, well, don't you think it's because of your, probably because of your sin? God wouldn't do this to you if you weren't a really bad person deep down inside. And so <laughs> we don't want to do what Job's friends did to Job to Naomi here and say, well, we think she's probably up to no good and that's why God's really, you know, we can't do that. Um, the text doesn't warrant that. The text, there's no sense in which we see Naomi sinning. Um, and so we don't want to make that mistake. I'm going to read you a verse here just to make it, um, you get where I'm coming from on the um, foreign wives here. This is 1 Kings 11. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel. This is a quote. This is Kings, but it's quoting from Deuteronomy. You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. And then it talks about how Solomon took all these foreign wives, and he didn't hold fast to the Lord. So what we can take from that is, again, the Old Testament wasn't so much against interracial marriage. It was against um, marrying people that aren't worshiping the Lord. And there's actually a lot of other reasons we can know that's true, like provisions for foreigners coming in and being knit in. And if it was simply never associate with anyone from another culture, then there wouldn't be those provisions in the law for somebody who wants to come in and wants to um, worship the Lord and wants to you know, um, be, be knit in with this uh, people of God. So that's kind of an aside. So all suffering is not a result of a specific sin. Second thing. We can't look on from the outside and know exactly why hard things happen if God doesn't tell us. We can't look on and see, here's this hard thing going on in somebody's life. It's probably because their weakness here, right? We can't make that judgment. 
And again, we want to look from the outside. Job is a good example. But Jesus specifically teaches against this in the New Testament. I'll read you here from Luke 13. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So this is people talking to Jesus and they're saying, Hey, are these people that died, remember when um, Pilate killed them? And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So again, Jesus is warning us. You see something difficult going on in the world. And you see, I'll give you a real-world example. You know, a hurricane hit New Orleans, you know. The Bible's warning us, don't say, well, the hurricane hit New Orleans because uh, God was mad because of X, Y, and Z, which actually happened whenever that hurricane did hit New Orleans. People were saying, like, I know why God did this. Um, And the Bible's warning us, like, that's scary. Like, let's not do that. Jesus is saying, do you really know, like, why the tower fell? Thanks. Um, Okay. So... We don't want to do that. And again, kind of... Can I re-get my train of thought here for a second? Again, starting out this section, spending some time saying what it's not saying, right? Um, That we can't look at this story about Ruth and Naomi and conclude, if we're faithful to God, these bad things won't happen to us. Okay? Okay? We don't want to do that. Now, I hope that we're not, you know, doing that to people. Somebody's house burns down or something and tell them, you know, well, I think it's probably because God's mad at you or something like that. We shouldn't be doing that. Um, But, you know, I've heard other things that are very similar but maybe like a little bit more subtle. Um, Things like, you're just depressed because you lack spiritual maturity. Things like that, where it's like, I can look in on the outside and see difficulty in your life, and I can just point out, like, I know it's just because you're a weak Christian. And if you were a strong Christian, you'd be like this. It's kind of the same idea. You know, it's like, look, here's this difficult thing in your life, and that particular thing is emotional and um, internal, and I can see all the causes, and I can tell you where you went wrong. Uh, That's scary. Um, And we want to be very hesitant to assert things we don't know. And there's other examples, things like, I don't think anyone here would say this, but you don't get healed because you don't have enough faith. Um, that's a common idea in certain circles, that if you're sick, it's because when you pray and have faith, you didn't, uh, you didn't have enough faith, and so that's why you're still sick, and that's why you have cancer or whatever. It's wrong. It's a wrong idea. And it's not helpful. Um, it's totally against the Bible. Okay, so just to summarize here, we just want to be careful. We want to be really, really careful not to read into these things. And it's human nature, I think. 
in many ways we see, we have a pull to try and want to have an explanation and like figure it out ourselves and there's times and there's many many times where we just have to say I don't know I just don't know God's in control and I don't know and so all suffering is not a result of a specific sin we can't look on the outside and know why the hard things happen one more example from Jesus' life remember the when they encounter the man that was born blind and the disciples this is I think forget the chapter in John, maybe 9, I think it's 9, uh, he says, hey, here's this blind man, and the disciples say, well, who has sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, um, neither, basically. He's, he says that this man was born blind so that we could show the glory of God, and then he heals him. And so, again, another warning, you know, in our human nature, it's easy to want these easy, clean-cut examples and to try and put these things in a box, and we just want to be really hesitant to do that unless God has said something. So there's times in the Bible where we do know something like that, where God specifically says, you didn't go into the promised land because of your unbelief. You have to stay in the wilderness 40 years because you didn't trust me, you know, um, to go in the first time. Things like that we can say with confidence. But whenever we don't know, we don't know. And so we want to be hesitant. It brings up a principle that I just want to, I think I've shared this before, but I'm just going to throw it out there again. And just, if you have this category in your mind, I think it's great, and it's probably review. But if you don't, I think it's really helpful. In all types of interpreting the Bible, and in talking to one another about God, there's two ditches, and it's, and, okay, let's just imagine we're driving down the road, okay? You don't want to go onto the ditch on the left, Right? It's like, I don't want to get stuck in that ditch. But you don't want to be so focused on the ditch on the left that you just turn to the right and you just plunge into the right ditch, right? You've got to be aware of both. And if, if you're only aware of one, that's, like, really dangerous. <laughs> and I think that we kind of can get that way in certain areas in our church culture, not just here, but, like, American evangelicalism. And the first ditch on the left that I think we are actually scared of uh, is the ditch of taking away anything from the word of God. It's like, here's what God says. And if anybody's like, well, I don't really want to follow that. It's like, oh, that's not good. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to diminish what God is saying. You don't want to just decide I'm not going to follow it or whatever. Okay. That's the ditch on the left. There's a lot of warnings about that. And you can probably think of verses, lots of verses in your mind about that. Now, let me ask you this. Is there another ditch? on the other side and see if you can think about it the ditch on the other side is we don't want to add anything to the word of God that's not there we don't want to uh, put anything in there that God didn't want us to that's also just as bad and I'll give you some verses that the Bible actually has some quite scary verses I'll just give you one here from Proverbs every word of God proves true he is a shield to those who take refuge in him Now listen to this second part. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So there's the ditch on the right, right? It's, you don't want to decide, well, I don't want to take anything away from God's word, so I'm going to add these 512 commandments, so that way we make sure we never get to that ditch on the left, right? No, that's not right, because we don't want to add anything and be found a liar, so we're trying to stay in the middle of the road. It's helpful on a lot of issues, having both those ditches in your mind. 
not to take anything away, and you all, but you also don't want to add. There's a lot of warnings, serious warnings. That that's a scary warning to me. Like, don't add, or you, God will rebuke you, and you'll be found a liar. That's like, whoa! Like, this is serious warning. And so, how does that relate to this? We want to take everything from Ruth that is teaching us, but we don't want to dig so deep that we're adding things that aren't there. And so that's why I spent some time saying what it's saying and what it's not saying. Trying to kind of build that up. Okay, so kind of moving past that, the what it's not saying, into what it is saying. And another lesson here, I think, that we can see from Job and as well as from Ruth. Mourning is not sin. It's not a sin to mourn. Okay, there's a lot of things in the Bible where people go through hard things and they mourn and they have to cry and they weep and they lament and that's okay. Mourning is not sin. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, We do not want you to become aware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So Paul is actually literally saying, like, I want you to be aware of how bad it was. I want you to know that we were in a big trial to the point where we were dis- despaired of life. And we see Job say something very similar in the book of Job. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord give, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, this is... uh, Again, kind of a similarity here between Job and Naomi. Naomi cries, and she talks about God's hand being upon her, and it's been bitter, and that's okay. We can say, this is hard. We can say, this has been a hard season, and that makes me sad, and I cry, and I struggle. And that's not sin. It's right to mourn over bad and hard things. It's, it's right and good. We see Jesus uh, later on in John 11 weeping over Lazarus, right? It's okay to mourn. One more example. O Lord, I cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me, and my companions have become darkness. That's Psalm 88. You know, I've heard this you know, idea before, like all the Psalms, when something bad was happening, in the end, they all turn positive and turn back to God. Actually, that's not true. Some of them, they just end in darkness. Literally, this one ends with the word darkness. It's just darkness. And the reality is, is that 
people mourn. And there's times in your life where it's just hard, and it's okay. When suffering comes, it's not wrong to mourn. And people who mourn are going to cry, and they're going to weep. And they're going to cry out to God and pour your heart out to God. And that's okay. reason I bring this up is ask this. How do we treat people who mourn? You know, how are we, do we really get this? You know, do we have God's view of difficulty in this difficult life and suffering? So one person um, said to me, if you're going through a hard time, it's okay. You know, it's okay to struggle in our church as long as it's not more than a month. Think about that. (laughs) It was kind of like tongue in cheek, but the reality is we don't want to, you know, send that message. It's like, yeah, it's okay to mourn, it's okay to struggle, but, you know, if you ask for it, you know, a couple Sundays in a row, like, you're probably in sin, you know, something like that. Like, we don't want, we don't want to send that. There's things in your life that are difficult, and there's definitely, there's things that can leave you scarred for life, where you are going to mourn the rest of your life, and that's okay. Does that mean we don't trust God? No, we trust the Lord, but does that mean that this real difficult thing that happened, um, it's gone. You can just say, I'm happy all the day about it. No. Um, just the same way that Jesus wept over Lazarus dying, we can weep you know, over lost family members. Um, lots, there's lots of difficult things. I don't want to bring up too many specifics because I don't want it to be too much of a, too close to home because I know there's lots of loss um, in the room, you know, and it's okay if it still hurts. You know, give that to the Lord, hand it, give it to God, but it's okay to hurt. Now, how much mourning are we comfortable with? You know, um, do we are, if we're less comfortable with mourning than the Bible, then we probably have a problem, right? We want to, we want to be like Jesus. We want to follow what God says. So let's imagine this. Imagine if I said this, Hey, I just want you to know, guys, right now I'm going through a hard time. And then I close the sermon, and this is how I end my prayer. God, I just feel like you're just putting things on my back right now, just difficult, burden after burden. Please look away from me. Turn your face away from me so that I can smile again before I die. Amen. That's Psalm 39, 13. Like, think about that. It's like, it's the Bible, right? Like, God, like he literally says, turn your face away from me so I can smile before I die. It's like, whoa. He is really suffering. He's really suffering. And he's expressing it. And when people go through really hard times, they're going to say stuff like that. They're going to say, like, I don't know how I can go on. I'm despairing of life itself. I just... I just, I don't know if I can keep going. And we need to know that going in, okay? So, the rest of the message, I'm going to kind of turn this into like a two-part message on this first chapter, about, and, and specifically dealing with suffering. What can we learn positively from this, okay? And so, the rest of the message, I'm going to look at suffering from the outside, okay? So, this problem of suffering, the, the life of Ruth here and kind of in the whole context of the whole scripture, but what is it that we can learn and positively apply when we're dealing with suffering from the outside? Okay, we're looking on the outside in.
Okay. And then next week we'll do it the opposite. We'll do inside out. So when you're in something difficult, you know, what do, you know, what is the Bible um, talking about? Ask us to do. So this week, outside in. The first thing that seems clear and positive from this text here in Ruth, from Job, from the New Testament, is this. One thing we can definitely do. Weep with those who weep. Weep with those who weep. I'm taking that from the New Testament. Obviously, it's a direct quote. But also here from Ruth, specifically where we are today, one nine, it said the, that the daughter-in-laws... Um, I'll just read this here, one nine. The Lord grant, this is uh, Naomi, that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. There they are. They're all there weeping together. Um, Similar to Job, where actually Job's friends did do kind of a good job at first, like before they started telling him all, all all his problems. It says, when they saw him from a distance, his friends, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. It says specifically, uh, just before that, they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And they actually were silent for a while. It talks about how many days they were silent. I think it was seven days, but I could be wrong because I didn't write it down. Uh, so weep with those who weep. Somebody's going through a hard time. Love them. Part of loving is just entering in and just saying, look, this is hard, and I hurt for you. you know, I, I wish that you didn't have to go through this too. Um, and so we come in and we try and understand, and we try and empathize, and we try and, as best we can, enter in with love, you know. Uh, again, Jesus said all the commandments could be summed up in this. Love God and love your neighbor. Sometimes I ask myself, how would I respond if this was my daughter, my son, or my dad, my mom? How would I respond? What would I feel towards people? And, you know, the people you love the most, you just really feel. When they suffer, you feel it. And so we can't do that perfectly, but we can ask the Lord to help us. God, please help us. Help us to weep with those who weep. Help us to really understand. And We don't want to be callous. Uh, we want to really have a tender heart towards people. That's the first thing. Second thing is they're just there. you know. Um, Ruth, contrast here between Ruth and Orpha. Ruth just stays. Stays with with Naomi here. Oh, here's the here's the uh, verse from Job. I did write it down. Um, they sat there with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So that was seven days there. That's Job two eleven through three one. Um, so they were there. Uh, let's read this section where Naomi stays or Ruth stays with Naomi. This is verse 18 of chapter 1 in Ruth. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. We'll stop right there. The 
comfort, sometimes the comfort we can give is just to be there for people. Just be there. Just say, I'm here with you. It's hard, but I'm, I'm here with you. I'm not going anywhere. If you need me, I'm here. That's a big deal. Um, we can think of many times in the life of Jesus where he did this, right? He sees someone in difficulty. He approaches. He comes close. And whether that's Lazarus and Mary and Martha. You know, Lazarus died and Mary and Martha are mourning. And they're asking difficult questions like, if you were here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And we know you could have got here earlier. Why didn't you? You know, these, that's a paraphrase. And he doesn't say, you know, how dare you ask me something like that? He enters in with them. He tries to teach them. He tries to walk with them. And he weeps with them, right? We see that. But he's also there with them and goes to the tomb with them. Um, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing to me. That's a really great chapter, John 13, I think. That might be wrong. Uh, I, got, I got the chapters in John mixed up in my mind, but whenever, I think it's 11 actually, when he goes to be with them, uh, something to think about. Okay, one last thought. It's very similar to what we talked about last week, you know, self-giving, how Jesus was giving of himself just to be with people. Just the fact that he became a man and came down and be here with all of us. Um, physically, and now through the Holy Spirit, he's here with us as well, spiritually. But we can do that for people. Um, The other thing is we can't do that for everybody, you know. There's not, we can't be there for everyone. Uh, there's people far in the distance uh, that literally we just can't go and meet every need everywhere. But the people that God's put in your life, you know, you have the opportunity to make a difference there. And so it's no little thing. It's nothing to scoff at. One more thought here. This I am taking a lot from the New Testament, but I think we see hints of it here in Ruth, chapter 1. Whenever we get into a situation like this where somebody's going through something difficult, weep with those who weep, be there if we can, and then trust God to help, or you could say look to God. Look to God. Ultimately, we are not going to be able to help every person, right? One, it's not our role, right? God hasn't made any one of us or even all of us combined sufficient to help every person. And ultimately, only God can really enter in and help these people. I'll give you a verse here. Blessed, this is from Second Corinthians again, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So it says two things there that really relate to this section. One is, Ultimately, God is the source of all real comfort. 
God is the source of all real and true comfort. I can't give anybody ultimate comfort because I'm not God. I can't tell somebody it's going to be all right. I know it's going to be all right because I'm not going to control the future. I don't know what it's going to be in the future. Who can? God, right? God can. And so it says, really teaches two things in that passage. One, God's the real source of all comfort. And if we're actually going to comfort people, we have to be looking backwards to God and passing that along, right? That he says, if we're to help anyone, to comfort anyone who's in affliction, that it's with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So it's like we're looking backwards. It's like, here's what God has said. Here's, what, here's, what, here's the comfort from God. That's helped me. And ultimately, I'm willing to pass that on and tell you how God's helped me. How, um, but ultimately, acknowledging God is the real source of all comfort. It's God. So we see this here hinted at in Ruth in really both Naomi and, and Ruth are expressing out loud their trust in God. Like Ruth says it very clearly that she's going to go with her and that she's going to be, God's going to be her God. And Naomi, it's a little bit more implicit, but she's believing God's still in control. And she actually expresses that over and over and over here, that it's God who's in control. It's God who brought this on on them. But if you think really closely about what she said, you can see that she's still trusting God because she's actually praying that God would bless Naomi and Orpha. You notice that? It's like, yes, God brought this difficulty on me, but I'm still trusting him enough to commit you two to him and ask that he blesses you. There's still a level there of I'm trusting God. It's not one or the other, right? It's not like, oh, I'm struggling with this suffering and I'm and it hurts and I, I feel and it's bitter and I don't understand it. Or I'm gonna trust God. It can be both, right? You see both here. You see her saying, like, man, this is hard, I'm struggling, I'm expressing that through my words. This is bitter, I feel bitter. Call me bitter. Literally, she's saying, change my name to bitter. And yet when time comes to separate, she's saying, God bless you. I want God to take care of you. And so you see underneath that her faith and trust. Like, yeah, this is hard. God's in control. And I'm committing him. And I believe he's good. And I believe he's going to hear this prayer of my asking to help these two ladies. And he's not, he's not capricious. He's not out for their bad. That he actually wants to do good. And so you see, you see really a good summary there of the, the struggle. Um, but it can be both. You can be trusting God and have be struggling with suffering. Ultimately, we want to trust God. That if we're going to help anyone in suffering, we do it from a place of faith where we're trusting God. That doesn't mean we always... It doesn't mean the comfort always is going to come from you, right? We can pray. There might be a friend who's going through suffering. There's, you know, going through something difficult. And we just have to trust God and say, God... I'd love to say the right thing here and help them and help them to feel better. But would you give me wisdom if I need to just not not say anything yet? If they're not if they're not ready, if I just need to be here for them, would you give me wisdom there too? And we can trust that God ultimately is going to comfort them. So there's times where we don't, where we don't 
start giving them our, you know, wisdom or in the worst case scenario, our lecture, right? We just were there and that's okay. And we trust God. There's other times where maybe we do need to step in and, and say something and feel like God has laid this on our heart. That's okay too. Um, but ultimately we have to do it from a place of trust where we trust the Lord. Again, another verse, Proverbs 17. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his whips, lips, he is deemed intelligent. It's slightly different, but the Bible can, you know, the Bible really, what would we say? The Bible is really positive on saying less rather than more. In many, many cases, you know. Um, another proverb that's similar is, where words are many, sin is not absent. You know, it's like, be sparing with your words, you know. Um, it's easy to get into sin, and so, it's okay not to say anything. Sometimes you don't know what to say, and that's okay. Um, in fact, the Bible says, if you don't know what to say, it's okay to be silent. That's a good thing. Uh, that's all right. So I just want to kind of summarize here all these things that we're saying is ultimately there's a reality of suffering in the world. There's a reality of suffering and it's difficult. We can't look at anybody's life and know this is what's, you know, this specific sin is what causes. In most cases, I mean, it might be, it might be obvious to everybody if, you know, um, there's some things that are one-to-one, so if you're driving drunk and you get in a wreck, it's like, okay, it's because you're driving drunk. Um, so I don't think it's wrong to deny that. But whenever it's something that's not that clear, um, we don't want to jump in and give our speculation, assume we understand it and know why this trial is going on in somebody else's life. We can't look on from the outside and know why hard things happen. When hard things happen to people, they're going to mourn. And the Bible is really comfortable. God's really comfortable with people mourning and pouring out their heart to God and saying how they feel. And it happens all over the Psalms, and that's okay. And we want to be comfortable with that too. If people are really struggling and, and they want to express that, good. That's good. Uh, we want people to be able to pour out their heart to God. That's actually a command in the Scripture. Pour out your heart to the Lord. You know? And so do it. And that means not just, it doesn't say pour out all your good and pretty thoughts to the Lord. Now pour your heart out, right? Your heart, everything, hard stuff. And be honest. And be honest with people. I mean, we can be honest. We have to show discretion. There's a balance there. But if you're struggling, it's okay. If somebody says, how are you doing? It's okay to say, actually, I'm really struggling. Uh, Would you pray for me? And that's okay. Um, We can't put a time limit on on the morning. What do we do if we're on the outside? Well, ultimately, the biggest thing would be we trust God. God's the God of all comfort. God's able to comfort this person. There may be times where you have no input into this person's life. I'll give you an example. My friend whose wife died, I've shared that a couple different times. I went up to the funeral. He's a pastor. His his wife died. It's like, you don't know him. Uh, I don't feel like you're in the position really to be his comfort or to comfort him specifically, but you can pray for him. And you could commit him to the Lord. You can trust the Lord. Um, and there's lots of times like that uh, where that's, all, that's, that's what we do. We pray. 
We trust the Lord. Um, but there's other times where we're closer. And what do we do in those, in those cases? We still trust the Lord. We trust the Lord that he's the source of comfort, that ultimately he's able to comfort this person and be open. God, is there anything you want me to do? Do you want me to be there? Do you want me to say anything? And if you don't, um, if you don't have anything for me to say, I still trust you that you're in control and you're able to help and you want to comfort. Um, and he does. God really cares about us. God really is looking out and has a heart for the suffering. And that's so clear in the Bible. I mean, even just this book here, Ruth, in the end, we see like God's working this for good. We see here a broad picture of the goodness and, of God and his care for individuals, even just the placement of this book in the Bible. Like, this is right after Judges because it's in the time of the Judges is actually when this is going on. So during all this really bad stuff going on during the Judges, they move out of, of, of Israel and, they, and they're living in Moab. And so there's all this really bad suffering going on all over the place, Israel, Moab, everywhere. And what is God, what do we see God doing? It's like we see God here caring about individuals, this person, Ruth and Naomi, and he cares. And it's like he's caring about his, their individual life, and here it is. We've got it written down. And ultimately, you know, the reason this is in between Judges and Samuel is because the descendant's going to be David, you know, in the end. And, and likely, it seems like the date of this particular book is written during the time of David before Solomon was born or becomes king. Because at the end of the book, it just talks about David. A lot of times after, um, a lot of times after Solomon, they, they talk about David and Solomon. And so it's kind of a little clue, like, this was before Solomon became king that this book was written. And linguistically, like the scholars or whatever uh, say that it seems that the Hebrew here, the way it's worded and the way things are worded, it, they date it to the time of David or maybe a little after. But So it seems like it's safe to guess that this was written during the time of David, this particular book. But all that is just to point out, God cares about these little individual, this little suffering family in Moab. They're not even in Israel. They're out in Moab. Like God is deeply concerned about them. And not only that, he's using this particular thing in the whole world, right? Like he's using it to help Israel in the end. And David's going to be born and they're going to have a good king, which is a good thing uh, for a while. So God cares about this little widow out in the middle of nowhere. That's amazing. That's a wonderful thing. It's actually kind of an amazing thing if you think about it culturally, too. Like, the book of Job, it's like, here's this rich, important guy, and he's really suffering, and God really cares about him. It's like, yeah. And then there's another book, too. Here's this not rich, not important, totally in the backwoods little widow lady. God cares about her, too. That's good news, isn't it? It is. So we can trust the Lord. We want to weep with those who weep. We want to be there. If God has anything for us to say, we can ask him and trust him. And if he doesn't, we can trust him with that too. And say, God, I'm not sure what to say. And so I'm just going to be here. And we can look to Jesus to help us, can't we? I mean, he did a great job. There's so many times where he's dealing with suffering people and he comes in. Even there's times even when Jesus is silent and suffering. That's pretty amazing really to think about it. There's times when Jesus is silent where he doesn't say anything yet. He doesn't 
correct or tell him the right view. He just he's just there. Think about remember John chapter five where there, he goes into the pool and there's all these suffering people around. Literally everyone is trying to get in that pool to get healed. Remember this, and he went up to one guy. Remember that? It's like there's like fifty people, you know, or more, like tons of people all around. And it's like Jesus is like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go up to this one guy. And if Jesus can do that, then I think we can feel liberty and we don't have to feel guilty if we don't, we, we're not able to comfort everybody. Um, Jesus just had that one guy to minister to and there's times where it's just that we just have one person and that's okay too. Um, but we want to trust the Lord wherever we're at. Well, we're going to kind of break this up. This kind of the part one relates to next week's, but it's going to be a little different. Look at it from the inside out um, whenever we're going through suffering. But ultimately, we can look to the Lord and trust Him. And He's good. He cares about us. And He cares about the people around us. And so, we're thankful for that. Let's pray together. Father, we just look to You. We are thankful that You care. We're thankful that we can mourn and pour out our hearts. And that You're not scared by that. Um, We love You. We need You. We need your help every day. There's a lot of suffering uh, around this fallen world. We're looking forward to the day when you put it all right. So we just pray, come Lord Jesus. But we also ask, until you do come, would you please help us? We want to be lights. Uh, We don't want to make things worse. Um, And so we're asking you to give us wisdom. Help us to weep with those who weep. Help us to really care for people. Help us to really listen and enter in. Help us in every way. We, we just need you. Help us to know when to be silent and know when to speak. But in everything, help us to trust you. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.